0: Please take your Bibles this morning and open them to Galatians chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 6 through 10 here in just a minute. This is the next step in our verse-by-verse walk through the book of Galatians, Paul's epistle to the Galatian churches. We began this series last week. We've entitled the series Authentic Gospel. As you are finding uh, the passage this morning, let me just, by show of hands, let let me know how many of you in here are coffee drinkers. Coffee, we have a lot, of, a lot of coffee drinkers. Okay, you can put your hands down. How many of you um, drink your coffee black? Not, not as many hands. Well, let, all right, put your, How many of you drink your coffee, how many of you add something to your coffee, put something in your coffee? Raise your hands, raise them high, I need to see. You, let me just say this right now, all of you are coffee heretics. <laughs> you have added to your coffee. Sugar, creamer, honey, some carcinogen. Who knows? You added something to your coffee. And so I'm glad you raised your hands. You've all been exposed now. You need to come under the discipline of the church. Now, I, I remember, uh, it was just several years ago that that I began to drink my coffee black. Uh, I, at one time, put that kind of stuff in my coffee as well. I would go to Starbucks and order the the mocha latte with all the other stuff and the whipped cream and the little drizzle of chocolate on top of it and all that. I did all that as well. But for health reasons, a few years ago, I decided I would I would stop adding stuff to my coffee. And so I began to just drink coffee black. And, and lo and behold, I discovered how good it was. Wow, this, this, this coffee, you know, yes, it has a, a bitter taste to it but, it, but it's not just a bitter taste. Underneath that bitter taste, you can taste a... Um, the earthiness of it, you can taste almost a flowery taste, sometimes a nutty taste. And, and I began to appreciate different types of coffee, different coffee from different parts of the world and, and different types of roasts that are, um, that are performed upon these different coffees. And, and so I began to enjoy just the simple, pure, black coffee. I decided that it was to add anything to that coffee, was to absolutely turn it into something it wasn't meant to be now all this is sort of silly but I use this as an illustration this morning because we come to the uh, book to the Galatians the epistle to the Galatians again this week and what we see is that Paul is in this entire book he is warning the people of the churches of Galatia not to add anything to the gospel Uh, now I'm quite saddened by how many people in here feel they need to add to the coffee. But, but it would be even more saddened if anyone in this room felt they needed to add to the gospel. While adding to your coffee may destroy a good cup of joe, adding to the gospel will destroy your soul. The true gospel is beautiful, simple, pure, and holy. But from the moment that the cross began to be preached, sinful men have tried to sweeten up the gospel. And make it more agreeable to our man-centered taste buds. Man does this by adding to the gospel things that he can do in his own strength. Just add a little sprinkle of human effort here. Or a spoonful of merit there and voila. We have a gospel that makes us feel better about us. But the genuine gospel is not ultimately about us. It's about God. Yes, by it we are saved But we are saved in such a manner that God gets all the glory and all the credit. In this epistle to the Galatians, Paul makes this very, very clear. Now I'll remind you that Paul has, he planted these churches in the Roman province of Galatia. He did this on his first missionary journey, probably around uh, 45 through 47 A.D., somewhere around there. These churches in Galatia were planted in in, in four major cities, there's Antioch of Syria, there's uh, Iconium, there's Lystra, and there's Derby. And Paul, these cities were all uh, situated on a, on a very well-known Roman thoroughfare, a, a very important trade route. And so Paul takes that road, uh, begins to plant churches there. You can read all about this in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14. And after getting to the last city there of, of Derby, he turns around, he and Barnabas turn around, and they go back through the same cities to the same churches um, encouraging, strengthening the brothers, and establishing elders in each one of the congregations. And at the end of that missionary journey, he, he comes back around and reverses himself and then goes back to his his home church, the sending church, Antioch of Syria. And they celebrate what God had done among the Gentiles. But at some point after returning to Antioch of Syria, Paul hears that these churches that he had just planted have begun to succumb to some dangerous teachings. Teachers had infiltrated the churches and were adding to the gospel. They were teaching people that Jesus's saving work wasn't enough. Instead, something else needed to be added to what Christ had done. So like an upset parent, Paul writes a sharp letter to these young churches. His introduction, which we looked at last week, was quite terse. He had nothing commendable to say to the Galatian churches like he did other churches to whom he wrote. And at the point where Paul, in his other letters, usually has a word of thanksgiving to God for the church to whom he's writing, at this point, where you expect to hear that, instead, we have rebuke. Where one expects to hear, I thank God that you, what we have here in verse 6 is Paul saying, I am astonished that you so, so please stand now as we read the passage we're going to study today. We stand at harvest because we know that this word that we are reading here is not just Paul's words. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, meaning these are authoritative words. These are Jesus' words, as Peter was talking about in our evangelism class this morning. All of the scriptures are, are the words of Christ himself. And so we come here this morning... We read these words and we stand in the honor of reading them. Galatians 1, beginning in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a clear, simple, beautiful, pure, yet deeply profound gospel. And we would be fools to add anything at all to it. So, Lord, let us hear the Apostle Paul's words this morning. Let us hear them with the force that Paul meant for them to be heard with. And so that means, Lord, that we need the Holy Spirit, as we always do, to open our ears because sinful men's ears don't like these types of words. So give us ears to hear and give me a mouth to speak. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. In this, the, um, the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation, as we think about the Reformers and all that God did to bring revival to his church 500 years ago, we can pretty much boil down the whole conflict between the Reformers and Rome down to one word, one word, the word alone. Alone the reformers all believed and taught and literally staked their lives on the fact that the bible teaches that our salvation is the work of God alone they believed and taught and staked their lives on the fact that we can add nothing to it they had an unwavering conviction that the all-sufficient scriptures alone are our authority and that in those scriptures We see clearly taught that we are saved by God's undeserved, unmerited grace alone, which is received by his people through faith alone. Faith in the finished work of Christ Jesus alone. And therefore, our salvation and our very existence is for God's glory alone. But Rome didn't like the word alone. Rome didn't deny that one is justified by faith, just not faith alone. Rome didn't deny that one is saved by God's grace, just not grace alone. You see, Rome preferred the word and. The scriptures are authoritative and so is the papacy in the ecclesiastical tradition. Put faith in Christ and all the sacraments. You are saved by the grace of God and Through indulgences. There is the necessity of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross and the re-sacrificing of Christ at the Mass. And so on and so on and so on. And so today, we must keep preaching that word alone. There are a thousand ways men today try to add to the gospel and thereby walk away from that word alone. You need to believe the scriptures and this teacher's New revelations. You are saved by God's grace and by being baptized. You need faith and the ability to speak in tongues. You need to turn to Jesus and do social justice and so on and so on and so on. And so in this epistle to the Galatians, Paul is fighting for the word alone. The fledgling churches were being told by a group known as the Judaizers that in order to to truly be saved... In order to truly be God's children, they needed to have faith in Christ and receive circumcision. They were being told that in order to be saved and, and be, to be rescued out of this world, they needed God's grace and works of the law. And so a distraught and exasperated Apostle Paul writes them this fiery letter, and in it he thunders forth the word Alone. The Apostle Paul doesn't mince words. In our day, what Paul has to say in today's text would be considered offensive, narrow minded, and intolerant. He would be kicked off of college campuses, shouted down, called a bigot, and labeled a purveyor of hate speech. In our day, after hearing Paul's words, listeners may need to retreat into their safe space. So, why was Paul so hot under the collar? Well, first point this morning simply is Paul will not tolerate. What is happening in the churches of Galatia, for he knows that to accept a gospel that has been added to is to commit high treason. To accept the gospel that has been added to is to commit high treason. Galatians 1 verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul says that he is astonished. He is stunned. He is shocked. He is bewildered. He can't believe that these churches whom he was just teaching and preaching to, the places where he had just established elders, he can't believe that these churches are beginning to fall into such error. Some of the people in these churches to whom Paul is writing were Jews who when they first heard the gospel according to Acts 13 verse 42 were so hungry for more of it that they begged Paul to come back the next week and keep teaching them. Some of these people in these churches were Gentiles who, according to Acts 13, verse 48, rejoiced greatly and glorified God that the gospel had come to them too. And Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel in such a way that according to Acts 14, verse 1, a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. What amazement Paul must have had at that time to see how God was working among the Galatians, but now he has an amazement of a different sort. He's amazed that these same people are so quickly turning away from the gospel. Paul was astonished and he was astonished that this was happening so quickly, meaning so soon after these churches had been planted. Remember, this letter was probably penned around 48 AD, and so if these churches were planted around 46 or 47 AD, it's only been a year. And let me correct a little mistake I made in last week's sermon. I listened back to the sermon, and when I find mistakes, I like to correct them. And I had said in the sermon accidentally that, that, that these churches were, were planted within a decade of Christ being on the earth. I meant to say the first couple of decades, meaning that, you know, this is right around the 46, 47 A.D. era. So, it's still, it's quickly, though. This is probably Galatians being written around 48 A.D. This has happened so fast that these Galatian churches have begun to, to stray from the good news, the gospel, there seems to be a hint here in the text. And by the way, this entire book, and we'll see this more as we progress. This entire book has a ton of allusions to the Old Testament in it, and that's for a purpose. And we'll see that purpose as we progress. But I see, Think we see one of them right here. I think we see an allusion to Exodus thirty-two, the the passage that that Todd read earlier. In that passage, in verse eight, it says, "Paul, this is this is." Um, God speaking to Moses, he's talking about his people, the Israelites. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. God's people had been delivered from the slavery of Egypt, but turned from their salvation quickly. And now, in this text, God's people have been delivered from the slavery of sin, but now we're turning from their salvation quickly. Paul tells them that he's astonished that they were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, deserting. This is a very colorful word. It, it was a, a military term referring to someone who abandons their post, someone who goes AWOL. Having Noah in the in the military now, we, we've learned a lot more about what you can and you can't do, and that's the worst, right? Is to go AWOL, to abandon your post. Paul was saying that these Galatian Christians were becoming gospel turncoats, gospel traitors. They were committing As I wrote in the first note there, first point there, they were committing high treason. Now this verb, to desert, is in the present active tense, meaning that they were in the act of deserting. They had not fully deserted the gospel yet, but they were well on their way. So there's still hope, and that's why there's so much urgency here in Paul's tone. He is sternly warning them before it's too late. And we also need to see that this verb to desert is in the middle voice, not the passive voice. Meaning that Paul is saying that they are at fault. They are the acting party here. They cannot blame their behavior on someone else. They cannot blame the false teachers. They're at fault here. You may be thinking, well, wait a second. It's not their fault. These teachers have come in and started teaching this junk. But Paul knows the human heart well and so should we. All Satan has to do is set the bait. For our wicked hearts to then go after it. The mouse caught in the mouse trap can't blame the person who put the cheese on the mouse trap. He can only blame his own appetite. That's what James teaches in James 1, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by Satan? By false teachers? By a bad book with bad theology? No. Each person is lured and enticed by what? His own desires. That's why we fight indwelling sin and search our hearts deep and wide for remaining idols because we know, as we just sang, we are prone to wander. Now, I want you to notice the personal nature of their desertion. They're not just deserting the gospel or deserting Paul or Paul's words. Paul says, verse 6, you are deserting him. Now, who's the him? You are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. This is not referring to deserting Paul. The Bible always attributes our call, our effectual call to faith. It always attributes it to God. They are therefore abandoning, they are deserting, they are turncoats against God the Father. He is saying you are not simply turning away from some sort of general message of good news. You are committing treason against God himself. Paul says you are turning against the one who called you in the grace of Christ. Now with this statement here, Paul is reminding them that their salvation was completely God's work. It was by God's initiative. He called you. And that's the effectual gospel call. And it's unmerited. And listen to this. He called you in the grace of Christ, meaning that the grace of Christ is the means by which they received God's effectual call. The means by which they heard the call of God. This means that even to hear God's call, we need the grace of God, the grace of God provided through Christ, to open our ears to hear it. But wait a second, you may be wondering... Wait a second, I, I understand effectual calling, and I, I know what a general call is and an effectual call. Wait a second here, Steve. If these people were called by God in the way you're saying they're called by God, well, then certainly God's call is irrevocable, and it will accomplish its end, right? Romans 8, you all know the passage well, verse 29 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also what? Called. Past tense. Called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. He says certain things. Friends, Paul knows. He doesn't have inconsistent theology. Paul knows That God's work, when it really is God's work, is certain and effective. But he also knows man's heart is wicked and deceptive. And so when he sees those who claim to be Christians straying from the true gospel, he doesn't say, oh, oh, don't don't worry about it. You guys are called. You'll be okay. He doesn't say, oh, you you prayed to ask Jesus in your heart. Rest easy. You're good. He doesn't say, oh, wait, wait a second. Don't you remember the day and the time that you walked the aisle? Hey, didn't you write that in your Bible? If you got that, hey, you're good. He doesn't do any of that. When Paul sees Christians not acting like or believing like Christians, he warns them lest they fall away and prove to never have been really, truly Christians. When Paul sees people straying, he says things like this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. The same Bible that teaches us that true believers are truly secure, and this verse we, we, we read and we celebrated yesterday at, at, at Katie's grandmother's memorial service, John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The same Bible that gives us that wonderful verse also gives us this terrible warning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, Hebrews 3, verse 12. God is not in the habit of giving false assurance to those who begin to waver on gospel essentials. God is not in the habit of doing that. He will give you stern warnings to wake you up. And it's quite simple here. Don't add to the gospel. If you do, your salvation is in question. Oh, friends, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The Galatians were in danger because they were neglecting the gospel. They were, according to verse 6, turning to a different gospel. And that brings me to my second point this morning. Paul will not tolerate what is happening in the churches of Galatia, for he knows that, first of all, to accept a gospel that has been added to is is to commit high treason. But he also knows that to believe a gospel that has been added to is to embrace utter fiction. What do I mean by that? Well, I'll explain. Let's look at verse 6 again. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you, in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, the word different here in the Greek is the word heteros, which means something of a different kind, something foreign. You you recognize the word heteros. You recognize when we say heterosexual, someone who's attracted to the opposite sex. So something of a different kind. The idea being that another gospel was a different gospel altogether. Okay, when Heather brings one of those frou-frou coffees from Starbucks, I refuse to call it coffee, okay? That is a drink of a different kind. Adding anything to the gospel makes it a gospel of a different kind. But in reality, a gospel of a different kind is simply a fake gospel. It's not a gospel at all. There is no other gospel. Gospel is good news, right? There is no other good news. That's what Paul makes clear and wants to make clear in verse 7. Not that there is another gospel. This time, instead of the word heteros, here when Paul says another, he uses the word allos, which means something different but of the same kind. So, so what's he trying to say here? Well, Let me, me kind of illustrate it if, if I can. If I'm sitting at Waffle House and I have a, have a drink and I ask the waitress, will you bring me another drink? It's usually coffee. <laughs> if I've got coffee there, will you bring me another drink? Drink. She knows what that means. She's just going to refill my cup. She's going to continue to bring me the same thing. But if I say, bring me a different drink, she may kind of wonder, well, wait a second here. Do you want, you want something other than the coffee? You want orange juice, milk? What do you want? And so, what Paul is, is communicating here, what he's getting at, is if you add to the gospel, you're actually creating a totally different gospel, a gospel of a different kind. But in reality, there is no such thing as that. It's fiction. There is no gospel of another kind. There is no gospel of the saving kind. So there is no gospel like the true gospel. So first of all, okay, if you're adding anything to the gospel, it's something totally different. But secondly, there is nothing else that can save you. There's nothing else like the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So to add to the gospel and thus turn away from God is to turn toward nothing. God has a monopoly on saving truth. There is no other gospel. There is no other good news. There is only one word of good news. When you stand before your holy judge, saying that you lived a squeaky clean life is not good news. Saying that you fought for social justice is not good news. Saying that you had enough faith to live your best life now is not good news. Saying that you got baptized and had great church attendance is not good news. Saying that you gave all your money to the poor is not good news. Saying that you homeschooled your kids is not good news. Saying that you did anything is not good news. The only good news that you can say to that judge on that day is that Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again to take your just wrath for my sins and to give me his perfect righteousness that you require so that I can be with you for all eternity. That's the only good news I have, Lord. And that's the only good news there is. There is no other good news. A gospel that has been added to is a fictitious gospel. It is utter deception. All other so-called gospels are empty. They are Machinations and imaginations of wicked men. And indeed, it was wicked men who were bringing these graceless inventions to the Galatians. Verse 7 goes on to say, But there are some who trouble you and want you to distort the gospel of Christ. Trouble in the Greek means to agitate, like putting a stick in water and stirring things up. But, but the word has more of a, a psychological application. It has to do with causing one's thinking to be confused, creating doubt in one's mind the word is used in acts chapter 15 when the jerusalem church has gathered jerusalem council has gathered and they're responding with a letter that they're going to send to these uh, gentile churches to help them know that they don't have to come under the law like these judaizers have said and in that letter they write this acts 15 verse 24 we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words same same thing troubled troubled you with words and here it kind of explains what that is Unsettling your minds, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. Our minds naturally drift towards what we can do to earn favor with God. The fight for pure gospel starts in the mind. Think about it. You know your own human sinful disposition because I know my own human sinful disposition. You mess up. You blow it. You sin. Instead of simply resting on 1 John 1, 9 and believing in the gospel that God has forgiven all your sins and that you're turning back to him and he restores you and cleans you, what do we do? We try to make it up to God. I blew it. You know what? God, I'll fast for the next four days. I'll do this. I'll start tithing more. Because our minds naturally, because of our sinful remaining sin that remains in us, our minds naturally go to what? What, what can we do? Or, or we want to be closer to God. And, and so we, we hear people doing different things that we think, oh, you know what? Hey, if, I, if we just did that, if my family just did that, hey, we'd be closer to God too. All of these are, are, are avenues in our minds open doors in our minds to false gospels. So we must renew our minds daily. We must preach the gospel to ourselves daily. The false teaching was was diabolically designed to create doubt in the mind of the believers. Create doubt in their minds individually, but also it was designed to wreak havoc in the church corporately. To tamper with the gospel is to create a virus that will run through an entire church and make her sick. These false teachers knew this, and thus they were troubling the Galatians. And according to verse 7, they wanted to distort the gospel of Christ. Distort's a powerful word here. It actually means to pervert or to transform. The idea is turning something into its exact opposite. This same word is used in Acts 2, verse 20, where the scriptures say, "...the sun shall be turned to darkness." And so the word turned there is the same word distort. So again, Paul is making clear that the gospel these wicked men were teaching is no gospel at all. What, they, what they're teaching is taking the gospel and is transforming it into its opposite. It wasn't good news, it was bad news. Believe me, friends, if our salvation depends on our effort in any sort of way, that is bad news. These false teachers were teaching bad news, bad news that came from the pit of hell itself in the very place that Paul now wants these teachers to go. And that brings me to our third point. Paul will not tolerate what is happening in the churches of Galatia, for he knows that to accept a gospel that has been added to is to commit high treason. To accept a gospel that has been added to is to embrace utter fiction. And finally, to teach a gospel that has been added to is to incur just condemnation. To teach a gospel that has been added to is to incur just condemnation. Okay, so if Paul hasn't been strong enough yet in his words and in his rhetoric, if his language hasn't been inflammatory enough yet, well, here it goes. He's about to take a rhetorical flamethrower to these teachers, these false teachers, to anyone who teaches a false gospel. And he doesn't even exclude himself. Let's read verse 8. But even if we, that is Paul and the brothers that he mentions up there in the first couple of verses, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Now this is very strong language. You probably know this, but the Greek word for accursed is anathema. The Hebrew equivalent to this word meant to devote something to God for destruction. Quite simply, it means to be eternally condemned or damned. To get the true weight and the brute force of these words, it'd be the equivalent of Paul saying, if anyone preaches to you a different gospel, let him go to hell. That's what Paul is saying. Do you feel the force behind those words? Paul isn't getting any more tolerant in this letter as it progresses. Issues regarding the authenticity of the gospel are very serious, very weighty issues. Paul would damn himself if he were ever to deviate from the genuine gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, friends, the accuracy of the gospel preached does not depend on the authority of the preacher. Rather, the authority of the preacher depends on the accuracy of the gospel preached. Does that make sense? Maybe Martin Luther can say it better than me in his sort of exaggerated style luther says this that which does not teach christ is not apostolic even if peter and paul be the teachers on the other hand that which does teach christ is apostolic even if judas anas pilate and herod should propound it so paul mentions that even if an angel brings a different gospel even he or one of those who are with him brings a different gospel don't believe it now many times Throughout church history, those who have deviated from the gospel have claimed to have received visits from angels. So it's no surprise that we read in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But when Paul says that we are an angel, what he's doing is putting the church on high alert. Church, don't become complacent, don't assume the gospel. Examine yourselves, examine your doctrine, examine your teachers. This was no trivial matter. For in the gospel, the salvation of man is at stake. But what's more, the glory of God is at stake. And so to drive home the point, Paul doubles down, literally. Verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Double warning. Double anathema. Paul is deadly serious. Now, there are three differences between the first anathema, verse 8, and the second one of verse 9. First, Paul broadens the scope of potential false teachers. First, he said, if we are an angel, in verse 8. But now in verse 9, he simply says, if anyone, if anyone brings to you a different gospel, let him be accursed. Secondly, we see that Paul changes the tense for the verb to preach. In verse 8, The verb to preach is in a tense that means it's a future possibility. It's hypothetical, in other words, which is the way it's translated. It's why it's translated in the ESV as should preach. Paul does not plan on preaching another gospel. He can't imagine an angel, a true angel, coming and preaching another gospel. But even if that were to happen, hypothetically, let that preacher be accursed. Now, in verse 9, Paul uses the verb to preach differently. He changes it. From should preach, which is a hypothetical situation, to now is preaching, which is a present supposition. So Paul now is moving from the hypothetical to what is apparently happening. So whether anyone might preach a different gospel in the future or is currently, right now, preaching a different gospel, it doesn't matter. Either way, let both of them be accursed. The third and final difference between the first anathema of verse 8 and the second of verse 9 speaks of, of how the gospel is handled when it comes to the Galatians. Verse 9 speaks of the gospel you received. Verse 8 speaks of the gospel we preached to you. So Paul is subtly saying that he has confidence that what he preached, the true gospel, was genuinely received by them. We'll see as he continues in the letter, even though he has harsh words, he has hope. He believes that there's better things for these folks, that they really have embraced the gospel. They just need to get back on track. So Paul offensively says that to accept another gospel is to commit high treason. Paul narrow-mindedly says that to believe another gospel is to embrace utter fiction. And Paul intolerantly says that to teach another gospel is to incur just condemnation. But Paul didn't care what the Galatians thought about his offensive, narrow-minded, intolerant words. Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Friends, Paul was no man-pleaser. The reason too many false gospels gain ground in our churches today is that too many of us pastors are man-pleasers. I mean, how could Paul be labeled a man-pleaser after verses 8 and 9? He is no man-pleaser. The word approval here means to curry favor. In our vernacular, it may be something like kiss up. Paul wasn't going to kiss up to man. Instead, he wanted to serve God. Now, you may be saying, wait a second. I thought Paul was trying to please man because I thought he was trying to please men for the sake of the gospel because we read in 1 Corinthians 10 Verse 32, it says this, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And didn't Paul say earlier in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 9, verse 22, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some? Oh, friends, let us be clear. Paul was willing to put aside his rights. Paul was willing to make himself nothing. Paul was willing to lessen himself so that there would be no obstacle in the way of the gospel. So in that sense, he did seek to please man. But if pleasing man itself became an obstacle to the gospel, then he was willing to be hated and reviled. Too many people in our day, in a distorted understanding of that verse becoming all things to all people, end up adding to adjusting, adapting, altering, or accommodating the gospel in order to please men, and what they end up doing is simply abandoning it. That's not at all what Paul means when he says, become all things to all men. At one time, Paul was trying to please men. Back when he was a Pharisee, trying to merit favor with God and and merit favor with his fellow Pharisees by zealous law-keeping, but not anymore anymore. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. If we are trying to modify the gospel in any way for the sake of pleasing men, then we cease to be servants of Christ as well. Ray Orland Jr. is quoted in one of the commentaries I was reading in preparation for the sermon. He says this, What might our evangelicalism look like without the evangel, without the gospel? We would have to replace the centrality of the gospel with something else, naturally. So what might take the place of the gospel in our sermons and books and cassette tapes? That dates the quote a little bit. In Sunday school classes and home studies and above all, in our hearts. So he's asking, what might take the place of the gospel? A passionate devotion to pro-life causes? A confident manipulation of modern managerial techniques. A drive towards church growth. A deep concern for the institution of the family. A clever appeal to consumerism by offering a sort of cost-free Christianity light. A sympathetic, empathetic, thickly honeyed cultivation of interpersonal relationships. A determination to take America back again. A warm affirmation of self-esteem. Now, continuing with the quote here. In other words, the church without the gospel will look very much the way the evangelical church looks at this very moment. So, a word of application here for us as the church we must guard the gospel, we must not marginalize it, psychologize it, minimize it sanitize it we must simply guard it and preach it we the church all of us do you see the Galatians didn't hear Paul's warnings and say whew I'm glad I'm not the pastor of this church no you see every time Paul warns against false teachings in his epistles and, and for that matter when Jude and Peter warn against false teaching in their epistles The warning is given to the church. The church, each local community of believers must guard the faith. The church, not just the eldership, is the pillar and buttress of truth. So be on guard, Harbins. Be on guard, church, against the gospel that is in any way added to. Be on guard against legalism that creeps into our thinking Be on guard of anything that might think that you have some sort of merit, some sort of credit that you can claim before a holy and just God. So we must always examine first our own hearts, our own thinking, but also our teaching and ask, are we preaching and embracing a gospel of divine accomplishment, what Jesus has done alone, or are we preaching and embracing a gospel of human achievement, what Jesus has done alone, and what we are able to do. In church, remember something else. These Judaizers believed in Jesus. They came from within the church. The church's greatest threats throughout history haven't come from outside, from those who hate Christ, but from inside, from those who claim to know Christ. Oh, friends, just because someone says they love Jesus doesn't mean they love the gospel. And for those in here who are unbelievers this morning, whether you realize it or not, you lived your whole life based upon the word and. Because every religious system that exists on this planet, including secularism, is simply an attempt for man to accomplish what he can by his own means, in his own timing, in his own way. So unbeliever, here this morning, you have lived your life, perhaps you've even believed in God, but you thought, and I'm a good person, and I'm not as bad as so-and-so, and I was born into a Christian family, whatever, whatever, and you're putting your hope in, I'm telling you this morning, stop, there is no and, embrace Christ alone, Jesus Christ alone. What he accomplished on the cross alone is your and my only hope. It was Jesus coming and taking on flesh, the second person of the Godhead from eternity past, in agreement with his own father, coming to take on flesh so that he could live the perfect, sinless life. We could not live in the flesh and identify with us be tempted in every way as we are. And then he went to that cross as a perfect, sinless person to take God's wrath, God's just anger, not for anything that he did, but for everything that we did. And so what happens at the cross is this double imputation as we talked about earlier today in the evangelism class, this divine transaction, that that perfect, righteous life that Christ lived is credited to those who put all their hope in Christ alone. And that rat of that, that sin that we have, that sin burden is taken from us and put on Christ. But only if we put all of our hope in Christ alone. And so this morning, I want to encourage you. Drop the and and embrace the alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue this morning... As we sing one more song, as we sit in our seats and or stand where we're at in our seats, and we pray, I pray, Father, that you would work in each one of our hearts. Because I know, I know each one of us in here are prone to wander. I know each one of us in here are prone to, to drift towards thinking that somehow, some way, we've got to make things right with you. <laughs> what 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 utter rebellion to think that sort of thing. So God. Help us to stay true to the gospel. Help us to stay anchored to Christ alone. And so, Lord, we pray that you do a work in our hearts to draw us, draw our minds especially, back to the gospel this morning. But, Father, if there be any in here who have never embraced Christ, my prayer is that through the gospel preaching of your word, ears have been opened and heart has been made new. And I pray, Lord, they would respond to the gospel this morning. Come and talk to me or talk to Pastor Deemer. So we leave this time in your hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.